Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Season 2 of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for 2018, our Season 2. Season 1 was great. We appreciate all the support that you guys gave us, and we're excited to launch Season 2. We've got a great guest today, and we also have some amazing guests lined up for you in the coming months, and hopefully all year long, we'll continue to bring it. But before we introduce today's guest, we have an exciting partnership to announce. So we've partnered with a company called Two Betty's. Two Betty's is a brand new snack food company that only uses natural ingredients and no refined sugars in their snacks. So they come in these packs of two and they're gluten-free, they're grain-free, they're dairy-free, they're peanut-free, um, and each round has 100 calories uh, each. So it's a 200 calorie snack. And I actually have been using them to start my day with breakfast. So I'll have two of these, then I'll have a hard boiled egg, then I'm a green tea drinker. So I'll, I'll wash it down with some green tea and then I'll start my day. And I just gave a presentation today and I felt full from these two Betty snacks. I felt awake, alert. Uh, I think nutrition is such an important part of performance. And so two Betty's has been a real treat for me as I start my day. And what's really exciting about two Betty's is they're actually going to offer 15% off of your first order when you use the promo code intentional. So all you got to do is go over to twobetties.com. That's the number two and then Betty's, B-E-T-T-I-E-S.com. The second thing that we're really excited to launch in 2018 is what we call a Patreon homepage. So Patreon is a website. You can find it at P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. And then if you hit the backslash and type in intentional performers, you can go to our homepage. And it's just a really simple way for you to help promote and sponsor our show. So you can give as little money as you want. It's as little as $2 a month uh, to as much as uh, $10 a month to help hey, say, hey, Brian, we appreciate what you're doing with the podcast, and we want to show you some love and help you uh, achieve the goals that you want with this podcast. So there's two real ways you can help support us in 2018. One is go over to twobetties.com, and the other is to go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers, sign up, and then just send us a few bones, show us some love, and we would be forever grateful for that support. So we're really excited about both of these opportunities. We've heard a lot of you reach out and say, hey, Brian, what can I do to help the show? Obviously, if you could share it with friends, with family, on social media, it's really helpful. But this is another really tangible way that you can help us continue to make this podcast as quality and as good as it possibly can be. So go over to Patreon, check us out there, and certainly go over to Two Betty's. All right, let's cue the music. And during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. I went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening 
to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. It's 2018. Congrats. Welcome. Happy New Year. Hope you enjoyed your holiday. Hope you enjoyed some time off. I got to rest and relax a little bit. I know I did. And we are excited to kick off this new year with a brand new fresh podcast and with a terrific guest. So just as a reminder, these podcasts aim to find out how people set their mind and go about that intentionally and how they set their mind, not just for preparation, but also for performance. So we dive deep with people. We find out their story, find out their journey, but really we are looking and mining for intentional gems to find out how they're intentionally setting their mind so that hopefully you're thinking about how to intentionally set your mind for preparation and performance as well. And today we chat with Elton Brand. For those of you that don't know about Elton, he played in the NBA for 16 and a half seasons, which we'll get into. And he was also the first pick of the NBA draft uh, back in 1999. He had a great pro career, a great college career. He played at Duke for two years. Uh, So he'll talk about that experience, what it was like to play for a legend in Coach K. Uh, And then he played in the NBA for the 76ers. He played for the Dallas Mavericks, the Atlanta Hawks. He played for the Los Angeles Clippers. uh, And he was drafted by the Chicago Bulls. So he played for a number of teams, a number of organizations. And today he works as the general manager for the Philadelphia 76ers G League team. They're called the Delaware 87ers. And he also works with the Philadelphia 76ers in their front office. As I mentioned, Elton had an illustrious basketball career as a two-time All-Star. He uh, was basically a double-double machine. For those of you that don't know, that means you have over 10 points and 10 rebounds throughout his career. He was the co-rookie of the year in 2000. Uh, He was uh, a second-team All-NBA player. Uh, Elton was a pro's pro and really had a great career in the NBA and also was a top, top, top college basketball player at Duke. He started his freshman year and then became uh, arguably the best player in all of the country his sophomore year, which, as I said, led to him being the first pick of the draft. But while those accolades certainly make him special and someone that we are aware of because he competed on the world stage, what makes Elton really special is the type of human he is, the type of person he is. And he'll talk about how that was cultivated from his childhood in New York and his mom and some of the mentors that he had in his life that helped push him and nudge him and get him to be his best self. And he'll talk about his journey to just do whatever it takes to try to maximize his potential. So he'll get into some of the weeds as far as some of the things he did with his mindset, his mentality, how he looked at uh, expectations that were uh, placed upon him. And and sometimes when he was snubbed or overlooked in other parts of his career. So Elton is a very thoughtful guy and he's also extremely warm. He's got a big smile. He's engaging. He's someone that leans in and wants to conversate with you. Uh, He makes you feel like you're an important person when you talk to him. He's just a very, humble great 
person. And so that's why I know you're going to love this conversation. Elton is, as I said, done it on the world stage, but he's also just very analytical, very perceptive. His emotional intelligence is just extremely high. And I think that's one of the reasons he had such a successful career and also such a long career. Playing in the league for over 16 years is not something that's easy. And Elton had injuries. So he'll talk about those injuries that could have really set him back and shortened his career. Yet he was able to elongate his career by doing the simple things, the little things, and just being what he calls a pro. So I know you're going to love this conversation. And when you do, we need you to share it. Elton admittedly is not on social media. So we need you to share this conversation with as many people as possible. So go over to LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever it is that you're social and give this a like, give this a share. Uh, It really does help us out. And in 2018, we need your help. We need to continue to get these messages out to people so that they can intentionally set their mind to be their best self. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Elton Brand. Elton, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for uh, hosting me. Uh, We're in Philadelphia uh, at the Sixers practice facility. Uh, Really cool facility just from the outside looking in. I was asking the guy at the front desk. He said it's been here for a little over a year. Uh, It's kind of like a warehousey space, and it's in Camden, New Jersey. Um, So... I'm just happy to be here and get to chat with you and looking forward to talking a little bit about your mindset and your journey and all that good stuff. Absolutely. Thanks for coming, Brian. So, Ellen, I want to start, before we turn on the mic, we were really just talking about the mindset for preparation and the mindset for performance. So as you go back and you think about your career, and you can even start in high school or college, how did your mindset develop as your career went on and as you developed as a person and also as a player? Um, You know, just... When I started young, seven, eight, nine years old, I just played. I just played basketball for the love. Um, I got a little older, high school, same thing. I'm just out there playing. You know, I don't know about, you know, studying the game. I don't know about visualization. I don't know about any of that stuff. I'm just out there hooping, and I had some, some success. As I got older, I'm trying to find every advantage that I could. You know, I read books like The Power of the Sub- Subconscious about the zone. And when the did flow. that start? That started after college, probably like my third, fourth year in the pros around then. I'm just trying to get any advantage that I can, legal (laughs) advantage that I could, to try to grow my game, grow my mindset, and just be a better player. Did someone introduce you to that, or were you just curious to try to get an edge? Just curious. I just wanted to get an edge, and I didn't meet with any sports psychologists, no vets, you know, passed it down. I just took it upon myself to try to just be the best athlete, best player I could. And did one of those books speak to you more than another? Is there something that you remember that, that carried on with you as you started to go more into your career? Yeah, you know, my mom, you know, my mother was saying there's a difference between a pro and an NBA player. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I, that really stuck with me. Like, she's like, okay, you could be an NBA player, but being a pro, you know, it's diet, it's mindset, it's all of that stuff. Like being professional as you're an NBA player. You can have a two, three-year career, but... If you want to be professional, you'll have longevity. And that really stuck with me. So um, I think the power of the subconscious, I read that one and I saw little anecdotes about how, um, you know, your, your mind can basically talk yourself into a great, um, like a great showing or talk yourself out of it. You know, the things that you put in your mind, the belief that you can do it or the belief that you can't do it. Um, it, it pays dividends. So that, that really struck with me. That was one of the first ones I really read on my own. You talked about mom. Give me a little more background as far as mom, 
how big of an impact she had. It sounds like a, a very big impact. But talk about her. What was she like personality-wise? What was it like growing up with her as a, as a role model for you? Oh, yeah, great role model, single-parent home. You know, two bad little boys, but she raised us the best she could. She did a great job. Um, how old's your brother? My brother's he's nine years older. Okay. He's he's a little guy. He's only six four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> In my family, we definitely don't call those little guys. <laughs> um, but you know, she she gave us all she had and. You know, she was a huge basketball fan. Like, she went to the Rucker down in New York and Manhattan and would watch the games, and she played ball herself. She'd tell me stories about how she couldn't pass half court because she was on defense and all these weird schemes that they had for women back when she was growing up. And But she loved, loved the game. What did she do for a living? So she actually was on disability. She hurt her back. She was in child care, um, and she hurt her back on the job. You know, she was trying to help the kid. Um, not fall off a ramp, and he was on a wheelchair. So she was out and didn't work for probably, I'd say, since I was 12 years old. Then she started feeling a little better and then went back into, you know, working with children. She worked with children the majority of my life. So you're 12 years old. Your older older brother's not in the house, I'm assuming. He's now 21. Yeah, and he wasn't in the house for other reasons also. <laughs> yeah. So so it's you and your mom that are yeah. spending a lot of time together. Yeah. Just talk a little more about that relationship and, and how she guided you uh, to become the man you are today. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, we grew up um, in a complex um, called Dunbar Heights in Peekskill, New York, and we had basketball courts. It's like basically kind of like public housing. So she would rebound for me. And it was kind of the most embarrassing thing ever outside of her making me take Taekwondo because she wanted me to have awareness of my body and flow and I'd come in and have my karate suit on and everybody make fun of me my taekwondo white suit on and everyone make fun of me having your mom rebound for you that was the second most embarrassing thing ever but it paid dividends you know that's how much she loved me she just wanted me to you know excel in basketball but the first thing first was homework if I didn't have homework I couldn't even go outside like it was none of, none of that play sick oh I feel better now you could go outside. No, if you're sick, you're sick for the whole day. I don't care. So, you know, this is a special relationship. Seeing her, you know, go through what she went through with, with back pain and, you know, things that she went through, um, you know, really pushed me. I wanted to succeed for myself, but also for her. Taekwondo, uh, how long did you do that for? <laughs> it, was, it was a good two, three years. You know, I don't know what belt I had, but I know I broke the wood and that was already kind of broken, but I broke it. You know, I broke the wood chip and the wood block and... I learned to axe kick, and I was there for two, three years. And dad, any any idea where dad was, who dad is, or any of that stuff? No relationship at all. No relationship at all. Um, I had some other guys try to say they were my dad. <laughs> Come into my life later. Uh, my mom spoke of him often. Before she passed, She, um, you know, we talked about him a little more. Um, but, yeah, no relationship. Who were the were there male figures that helped guide you uh, from a young age, or was mom the the biggest uh, figure in your life? So mom, of course, biggest figure in my life. Um, but then there was, like, guys, we call him Uncle Rob. You met him down with the Hawks. So um, He'd take me to the AAU games. I didn't even know what the McDonald's game was. And he's like, man, you can make McDonald's. Like, you're a good player. Like, and I'm just like, okay. Like, I'm from Peekskill, New York. Wasn't highly touted. You know, I guess a late bloomer, getting ranked on the scene. I didn't know about any of that stuff. I'm looking at colleges I'm looking at Duke, Kentucky, Carolina, just to see how many people um, were, were enrolled there, how many people their arena sat. They're like, no, 
you should look at University of Buffalo. You should look at SUNY's, you know, because that's what our area did. You know, maybe maybe Iona, stuff like that. But, you know, I, I dreamed big. So Uncle Rob, he was definitely an influence. My high school coach, Louis Panzanero, um, you know, he really pushed me. He actually, I actually quit basketball because he made me make 50 left-hand jump hooks. And everyone else didn't have to. And I thought he was picking on me. <laughs> But then my mom was like, no, you have to go back. If you see something in you, he wants you to work. Um, my AAU coach, Ernest Leutch, with the Riverside Church Hawks in Manhattan, down in Harlem. And then, of course, Coach K. Yeah. So you, AAU, you'd go, we'll get to Coach K, but AAU, you'd go into the city? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was the best talent. I started in Westchester, where I grew up. Um, and we played against a lot of you know mid-range talent, and we get smacked. We were getting blown out, but I was playing well. And that's when I was kind of recruited. By the Hawks, they saw me at one tournament, and they said, um, "You know, hey, why don't you come play with us?" And I went down to the city, down in the Bronx, and you know, didn't start. Came off the bench, and then uh, you know, I made my way there. It was guy Eric Barkley played with St. John's, Ron Artest, St. John's, St. John's, Metal World Peace. Now I think he might be back to Ron Artest. <laughs> Lamar Odom was actually on our team. And, and there was, was hype, younger. and there was hype for 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 Odom, right? Oh, absolutely, Odom. Yeah, and then there was another player that was ranked higher than all of us, but you know he didn't uh, he didn't pan out. But he was ranked top three in the country when we were in eighth grade. Who was that? Just another guy. I forgot his name. Yeah, he was from Queens. Uh, he was with us, um, but he was ranked third when we went to the Bob Gibbons tournament down in North Carolina. As you look back on that, I mean. Obviously, Artest and Odom had great NBA careers. You had a great NBA career. And then Eric Barkley, I'm sure he played overseas. He was a stud in college. Um, did you guys have any idea of how good you were? No idea. I mean, we went 64-1 and one summer. Um, only team we lost to had Baron Davis on the second team because mm. you had to play starters for the first quarter, bench team for the second quarter. And, um, yeah, and the, I think the starter was like Earl Watson. So it wasn't like – you know, Barron was a homer, but that was the only team we lost to in L.A., and they got a big lead at halftime, but we didn't know. You know, it was a lot of hard work, a lot of luck, a lot of just timing. It was just so many factors that turned into that, but we, we, we couldn't imagine, like, you know, three of us making you know, the McDonald's game and, you know, stuff like that. Well, I don't know. I think Lamar didn't play because of relationship with uh, some other stuff, but he didn't play. Sure. Uh <laughs> As you, as you look back on your upbringing, you said, I was sort of a late bloomer. When did you get good at basketball? When was basketball, you said, a lot of people in your area were like, oh, you go to a SUNY, but you're looking at, you know, the Blue Blood schools. Right. When when did you start to get good, and and what did that process look like? So eighth grade, I was probably, I would rank myself the third best player in my middle school. I could almost dunk, like, the one hand kind of Dan Marley, Thunder Dan Dunk, like, <laughs> with a volleyball. Like, I was like I was 6'4", and, like, probably 230, like, kind of chubby. Like, I didn't have so much game. You know, guys had real game. Like, they could handle, they could shoot, they could do stuff. Um, you know, but I was dominating, like, freshmen, modified, that level. Um, and then I took it serious because I saw, you know, academics could really change the trajectory of your life, like guys were getting scholarships, guys were getting jobs. Like my goal, really, was to go to Duke, 
get a degree and work at Morgan Stanley. <laughs> at what age was that a goal? That was like 10th grade. Is that written down? 11th. Is that in your head? That was in my head because I felt that I could still buy my mom a house and they made, you know, over 100000 a year back then. Like, so that who's was, introducing you to the idea of working for a bank? I mean, I know you're outside New York, but like, yeah. how does that even come into a 10th grader's mind? I'm around 10th graders, like, especially guys who can play a little bit of ball. Right. And I, you know, even as I look back on my life, like, I thought I was going to be John Stockton <laughs> until I got cut from my high school team. Um, but where is the idea of, like, working in finance or wanting to make money, when does that even flood into your brain? So there's a guy, Todd Scott. He's the all-time leading scorer in Peekskill High School history over me. I, I think he scored 20-something more points than me. We, we won back-to-back championships, and then my senior year we were upset. So I would have definitely smacked that record, you know, if I would have had him one more game. But anyway, he works with IBM. He was like, everyone compared me to him. Like, yeah, you're going to be like Todd Scott. You're going to be like Todd. You know, and that was his trajectory. He went into corporate world, and he's, like, leading a division, and that was in my head. Like, that's possible. You can come from humble beginnings, use academics, use athletics to to, to, to get a job and to, to make something of yourself. That was my goal. Like, I didn't think I'd be in the NBA. Like, no one from my area is in the NBA. Like, there's barely any Westchester, which is pretty big in the NBA. It's like that wasn't a that wasn't even a dream. It's so interesting you say that because the more I do these conversations, the more I realize how much a person's environment dictates their reality and what they think is possible and what they focus on. Because uh, I've interviewed professional basketball players who have said, yeah, in my neighborhood, this player was a D1 player. This person was playing professionally. So for me, it was like nothing. And if you listen to pro athletes' sons, you know, the Kobe's, the Steph Curry's, Ken Griffey Jr., if you really listen to them, they'll say, yeah, of course I could play on that level, huh. right? Like, why wouldn't I be able to play on that level? And I'm sure you've been on teams with guys whose dads played in the NBA. I, I know you have, right? Like, they don't think anything of it. So for you, you didn't think anything of it going and working in finance because that's what people did. I'm fascinated by that concept and that idea. And it's 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 spot on because Mookie uh, went to Syracuse. Uh, I watched him play ball, handle it since he was a young guy. He got a Division One scholarship. Hilton Armstrong, his dad, volunteered for the Peaks, made it to the pros out of Peekskill. We had more pros than... I don't know, Brooklyn at one time. You know, it's this little town, Peekskill. We had two pros, D1 players. They saw me do it. Yeah, it's it's attainable. So to your point, I can do it. He did it. I've seen it. I can I can basically, um, you know, envision myself doing it. It's such a, I, I mean. Not that they didn't put in good work. They put in the work to do it. But, I mean, I did it, and then it was like, yeah, I could do it too. But it goes back to the subconscious and just this notion of belief and how self-belief matters and and I go to a deeper conversation of like what goes on in our neighborhoods right like what goes on especially in inner city communities Philadelphia Washington DC wherever New York um and when people start to realize like oh wait I can achieve that uh, it's one of the reasons why I think Barack Obama was such a watershed moment for this country because people start to see that and you know I think Hillary Clinton in another capacity or you know, whatever the community is that those people represent, when we see someone doing what we otherwise might just not focus on or think is possible, it shifts the uh, 
the paradigm. It shifts how we how we see the world. And I think about like the way I was brought up and the people I was surrounded around. And I think about the journey that my friends are on now and what they were focused on. And having clarity as far as where I want to go is massive. Because if you don't have clarity around that, then there's just a whole lot of clutter that leads to us making decisions or handling stress or you know, going in different directions that are often not productive. Um, so it, hearing you talk about that's really interesting. So I want to go back to that high school moment where you're now realizing like, oh, I can play with these guys or I'm going to the city and I'm playing with these guys, you know, and we're playing against some of the best talent in the country. So is it around sophomore, junior year where now you're like, oh, wait, I, I can go to these Division One schools and be a top player does that start to come into reality for you and, uh, and how do you make the shift from focusing on morgan stanley uh <laughs> to playing at duke um yeah just to rewind real quick with the barack thing like my son grew up he was born you know he's nine now that's all he saw like as a person of color he could be president before that it was like I was you know, growing up. I'm in my 20s. It's like, no way. That's going to And once it happened, it broke the barrier. So it's, it's available to them to think like, hey, I can run the country. It's and, glass ceiling uh, stuff, right? It, it's, just, it's just that notion of a glass ceiling. And yeah. you could do it, but in your mind, are you like, I'm really going to do it, right? Like, yeah, it's we can nothing. say anything's possible. It's and nothing. people say anything's possible. But when you actually have someone showing you. You have a model of it. Yeah, and I'm like, go back to the, the pro athlete son syndrome. Like, I look at the Glenn Robinsons, the Tim Hardaway Juniors, right? That, that second generation, they both happen to go to Michigan. But, like, the second generation of those guys. And a lot of times they're overlooked because people say they're not talented enough. But I think part of what makes those guys make it to that next level is because they just are like, yeah, my dad did it or my uncle did it or my brother played, you know, you look at Seth Curry, you know, still playing in the NBA. Mm. No, you know, he goes mm. to Duke. He's a pretty good player, but like he just keeps going because mm. his brother is the MVP of the league. Like right. anyway, Clay Thompson, yeah. you know, these guys are, it goes on and on. They are much better They're than, everywhere. you know, their fathers, even a lot of them. So now I get that. So yeah. So high school, um, you know, 10th, 11th grade, it still, till I got to college, I still didn't think like I was going to the NBA. Time out, time out though. So you're starting to get recruited in high school though. All letters, all everyone. Um, Kentucky on the visit. Patino told me he wasn't going to leave, then he left. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm that guy. Like I'm. So I went from Nike. I went to Adidas camp, then I went to Nike camp. Destroyed Chris Burgess, who <laughs> went to Duke with me. He was number one. And that was really put me on the map. Like, I remember seeing rankings, and I wasn't ranked, you know, 100 in my sophomore year. It's like, oh, I'm 146 for, you know, all classes. Like, that's not bad. You know, you got Tim Thomas, Kobe, um, you know, Lester Earl, all these top talents, you know, a year above me. And then I'm, you know, going to be a junior, and I'm playing. And, um, you know, I just moved up the rankings. That Nike camp really, really solidified myself. Like, I had a big double-double, like – 30 and 15 or something and locked Chris Burgess down, which was the number one guy. And everyone was there from Dean Smith, Coach K, Patino, you know, Tubby's, like all of those guys were there, NBA. And they were like, okay, this guy's legit. And I shot up to top 10 right after that camp. I don't think people realize what those camps do. I mean, we're talking about how long ago is that? 20 years ago? Yes. Right? So at least like, pe- like 22. People, yeah. People don't realize. And I've had this conversation with other people other guests on this show are pro basketball players and 
they they remember their ranking like you just did. Like yeah. you just threw out that number was it one forty six? You you know where you stand, yeah. and then like somehow you get into that camp, and then there's this moment that changes the trajectory of of where you're recruited, where you go. Now you still may be able to go to a smaller school, uh, a SUNY school, whatever, and still Iona and still have a successful career. So there are plenty of examples of that. Absolutely. But it is interesting how those camps really. You know, you put in so much work, and then there's this moment that that just unhinges um, opportunity. Um, and it, I think outsiders don't get that understanding. And kids, because I, I spend time with high school basketball kids, they know exactly where they are in the rankings. Absolutely. And right or wrong, a high school kid's going to know exactly where they stand. And when they get in those spotlight opportunities, they can either melt or the light can make them brighter. And for you, you got in that spotlight, and you're – your light shined. Do you remember your mindset going to that camp and being ranked what you were? Like, can you go back to where you were and how you thought and what your mindset was like? Well, actually, I was disrespected by Chris Burgess and a guy named Eric, I, f- I think it's Chenoweth, that went to Kansas, yep. seven-footer. And um, they didn't know who I was. So I said to Chris Burgess, man, you thinking about Duke? We go to Duke. You go. You play the five. I'll play the four. And he totally dismissed me, like, you know, in a surfer way. Like he's a good guy. He was my boy at college. Like you know what I mean. Like I really, I really liked him. Totally dismissed me. Like they looked at each other. Both seven footers. Like who's this guy? Like they, they thought I was Lamar. Rose. They didn't know who I was. I'm East Coast. They're just like, like all right, I'm gonna puff you. Yeah, oh, I so told him. You remember him that? Oh, were- I remember it. I remember. And toys. Can I? I don't want to say the a word but i tore his butt up i tore his butt up i killed him like i destroyed him and it was like i remember that moment for sure what what about your upbringing or your personality allowed you because someone else might say oh man there's seven footer like i you're not seven foot no we'll get in your height but like (laughs) you're not seven foot and what what in what allowed you to have the mindset of like let's let's roll the ball out let's go like the competitiveness right any idea um so yeah this is pretty small ball like I was way and it was Tim Duncan with David Robinson it was P J Brown and Alonzo Mourning it was Patrick Ewan with Oakley and you know Mason it was like Biggs Davis brothers you know with uh, Rick Smith like it was yeah. big Bigs back then like six eight was way undersized. It wasn't small ball back then. Like everyone had a seven foot center, six ten, six eleven power for it. And these guys were Otis Thorpe, big, strong guys. I have to ask you this because it's it's just so present in my mind. I'm looking over your shoulder and I see number thirty four, and I see Charles Barkley's name in the rafters in your practice room facility. Did you watch Barkley growing up? Did he have an impact on you? Because as you think about like the small power forwards, that's the guy who I think of immediately, and then I think of someone like you, almost the next generation, uh, and then I think of like Draymond. You have these these outliers of small power forwards. Did you watch Barkley growing up? So I did, I did, and I was a big fan, you know, with the marketing and he's just just a great great guy with his personality and his game. Um, you know that series against the Bulls, like. You know, I was a sneak Chicago Bulls hater, but I love Jordan, so I'm rooting for him. But Carl Malone, mm. he really, you know, at six nine, he really, and he 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 went at Barkley in their series, and I was just like, okay, I think I like Malone. Mm. <laughs> but Malone, you know, with his his professionalism and the way he handled it, and you know, the way he got buckets, you know, it's interesting because your game was probably more similar to Malone than it was Barkley. But I was just curious, being an undersized four, did you mm-hmm. think of yourself as an undersized four? 
Uh, I mean, all day long, all day. Like I was like, these guys were trees. These guys were long athletic, but you know, that was my game. It was like back then, you know, beat them off the dribble, shoot the jumper, you know, whatever I had to do. Rebound, I could rebound, I could bang. You know, that was, that was fun. It's like, you see the big trees, they just chop them down. Like that was my mindset. You ask where I got the mindset from. It was just, um, you know, it's just, it's just not the size of the dog. It's the fight in the dog. And I, I love the fight. Like, I love the battle. Like, my temperament off the court, oh, I'm cool, I'm relaxed. I'm not, but on that court, like, I just want to bite your ankles off. I want to do whatever it takes to win. Were you like that in high school? High school, I was really dominant. We played in, like, Class C, then Class B. Um, but, you know, AAU, you know, things like that. Going to the city, playing against the best guys that were highly touted, ranked the best, kind of pushed me to do that. But, yeah, I, I wanted to destroy guys for sure. And so you had that mindset at that Nike camp where, I'm, all right, I'm going to destroy you? Yeah, destroy you. Destroy, destroy you. you. I want to get on. I want to be the best. I want to be ranked. I want to, you know, get to a good college. And then you said we'll get to Coach K, but whenever you're ready, I'm Let's ready. Because he was. So you go to Duke. Yeah. So what were you ranked coming out of high school? Top three. So you were you were now your national – your national guy. Shane Battier, number one. <laughs> you remember that one, yeah. too. Right? So so you're number three. You come in with Battier? Battier came in together. Um, Tracy McGrady was one on a lot of other ones, too. But, yeah, Battier and Chris Burgess, myself, and Will Avery all came in together. Okay, so you've got this star-studded class that you're coming in with. Mm -hmm. um, so now, did you feel at all like you'd arrived? Because you said, like, even, at, even like going to Duke, you're the number three player in the country you're not, like, now thinking, like, all right, yeah, I'm going to play in the NBA? So my high school coach, who I mentioned earlier, Louis Panzaneros, we were playing West Point. He said to me, hey, wouldn't it be awesome, because you guys are going to blow West Point out, if Coach K puts you in at the end of the game so the fans can see you? And I'm like, yeah, that would be awesome. Because, you know, we knew what the schedule was way in advance. I started. I started. So you're going to Duke <laughs> thinking I'm going to be a piece of the puzzle, but right. I'm not – going to start when does that shift and, and walk you can go into coach k and the impact that, that he had but talk about your transition from high school to college and what it's like to go to duke to be at duke to be there with this class i'm, I'm assuming you guys are probably the top incoming freshman class in the country i mean you're talking about four guys who are probably top 20 30 recruits whatever it is um so you get to duke uh, just talk about that experience yeah so you get there and you have these upperclassmen that can really really play and they're really, you know, they're older than you. They, Who are your upperclassmen? So it's like Rashawn McLeod, um, Nate James, Mike Chappelle, um, Ricky Price, you know, who's had a big, huge game against Carolina. Steve Wojciechowski, which was like the heart and soul of the team. He's a senior, and you're just this freshman, you know, coming in. And you know, people don't kind of remember this because Shane had so much success his senior year, defensive player of the year, national championship. But Shane didn't start. Like, that's my roommate. I started as a freshman, sophomore. Shane came off the bench. He developed. He worked his butt off to get there to that next level. Chris Burgess ended up transferring to Utah. Will Avery left early with me and Corey McGetty. You know, we were friends, and we were – but it, it was a lot of pressure. You know, you're playing against these guys. You're playing against – You almost have, like, underclassmen versus upperclassmen as I'm thinking about it in my head, right? Like, you got four highly touted freshmen – but then you've got these veterans who've been there who – different talent, right? Just different. Um, what, what was the team chemistry like or team dynamics like? So it's basically Coach K has my life 
in his hands, my professional life. That's what they're saying, like the older guy. You know, if he doesn't play him, there's no NBA, there's no draft, there's none, none of that. And I actually broke my foot after, <laughs> this could be, you know, subconscious, after a conversation with Rashawn McLeod, um, I was starting as a freshman, and he was, you know, a senior, and he could play. And uh, he's Chris Carwell, guys, you know, Coach K has my life in, in his hands, man. You know, I'm not playing. I need to work harder. And I broke my foot, fifth metatarsal. I had to get a screw in my foot. You know, Dr. Nunley did a great job putting me back together, but I didn't play. Rashawn started and ended up getting drafted number 20. He mm -hmm. played awesome. Then I came back. We beat Carolina at home on senior day. Made it to the lead eight. We're up, you know, 12 against Kentucky. Pageant, these guys get hot. Wayne Turner, and we end up losing. But, um, you know, it was it's, – it's a lot of pressure. And it's, a, it's these guys, everybody wants it. Everybody wants the same thing within your own team. Everyone's an All-American or close to it. So you're fighting to make it, off, make it out of your own team. So what were practices like? Oh, it was – it was brutal. Like the wings would play one on one on one just to see who would play because they were all so good. But so then we go to my sophomore year, my freshman year. I had a conversation with some some people and they're like, you know, you could be a top fifteen pick, top eighteen pick. And I'm like, you know, single mom, public housing. I'm like, okay, I think I might have to explore this. And Coach K said, look, you come back, you'll be on the cover of magazines, and we'll make it to the final four, and you'll be a top three pick. Mm. Trust me. So I had to go to my mom. I just want to fill in the gap real quick. So yeah. you go from you, your high school coach saying like, oh, yeah, you might – maybe I'll put you in garbage time <laughs> right. to after that year. So within a one-year span, you're now basically have an opportunity to either A, support your mom and get her out of public housing, Correct. or B, be the biggest deal coming back to college basketball and potentially – I mean – that that's a year span yes. where that changes. Yes. What does that do to a human? Like, what did that do for you? Um, I'm not gonna say positive or negative. Like, what did that that year do for you? So, put into context, I did have a a moment like, okay, I being a professional kind of came into fruition. Like, okay, I could be a professional. Grant Hill had a really skinny chest, and that's when I used to bang. So I'm banging his chest <laughs> and kind of getting buckets on him. Christian Leitner is calling all these fouls, and they're not even fouls. Like we're playing, and I'm like, okay, maybe I can play because I'm like, oh, Grant Hill. You know, this is pre-injuries because he's he was amazing player. Christian Leitner, Christian could play like he was an all-star at the time. I'm like, okay, I'm hanging with these guys. I'm 19, 18 years. Okay, I, I maybe I could be a pro. So is that's when summer, the first summertime? summertime, all the old guys come back. Like I kind of came back and so played with them last year. Before freshman year. Before freshman year. So you're you're now playing with pros, and you're like, oh wait, they're right. not these, right? These idols or like right. the larger than life figures. They like they're human. human. They are human. Yeah, and, and I can I can play with them. And they are human with bird chests. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm bi and I'm big strong. And dude. I'm big strong dude, young like ready to go. Yeah, because I played against Oakley Mason, and I held my own. You know what I mean? But, but playing against men. Grant Hill yeah. and Christian Leitner and these guys, and I'm just like, well, hmm. So understanding then that you might have an unfair advantage over some guys in the league. Um, and figuring out what that unfair advantage was. That was that was it. That was key. And that, for my confidence, like, okay, maybe I can play in the league. Like, all right, and let's go. Were they giving you that, or were they beating you down? Oh, no, no, they're, they're trying to kill. They, they're, you know, like I said, Christian's calling all these, these cheap fouls, and, like, 
uh, but you got to respect it. Like, I didn't complain, but it's like, that wasn't a foul, dude. Cut it out. Like, but did, it, it did anybody pull you aside uh, that summer and help you? And not not help you. Um, help you realize, like, man, you can play ball. Was there, was there anyone that sort of said, like, no, you, you, you can play at this level? Or was that just you sort of figuring that out on your own? Oh, no, no, no. They were all supportive. Like, Grant, Christian, Wojo. Like, I'd be BSing in layup lines. And Wojo would pull me aside and basically say, like, look, I'm not going to play in the NBA. You have the talent to be in the NBA. Stop BSing. Focus on your layups. Warm up. Because he was the captain. I'm a freshman, you know, trying to do reverse dunks and missing and laughing. And, no. Get your ass in gear. Focus. Work hard. And what's the message from Coach K as a freshman? So, so um, you know, he, so Duke went through a lull. This is when they were coming back. So I had kind of special, special place in his heart because I'm playing well. We got back to the lead eight. We're on our way. He sees it. But sophomore year, that's when it got real. You want to go into that? Yeah. Okay. So we're playing, you know, Cincinnati. Tough guys. Kenyon Martin. Melvin Logan? Hel is that Logan, the guard? Logan, Melvin Levitt. Yeah, they're a tough team. The Melvin Levitt, the helicopter, and we lost by one point in overtime in um, um, Alaska shootout. Sends me to the end of the bench. Curses me out. And yes, he did curse. My mom was like, Coach K curses? Because he's sitting there all stoic. I'm like, yeah, Mom. People don't think Coach K curses? I mean, my mom didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I spent 10 minutes with the guy, and it was like, it was one after the next. My mom did it, and then <laughs> so she came to a game where we were losing to Virginia, and, and then the F-bombs come out just to, you know, of course, to motivate us. So he kicks me to the end of the bench. Bring yourself bam, 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 to the end of the bench. Go take another picture for ESPN. Da-da-da-da-da, get out of here. Boom. Get out of here. Get out of my face. It's like, oh, man. So I got to put in this work. People don't remember this because of my college career and I guess stats. I didn't start two games. And so he benched you? Benched. And Chris Kamen, uh, not Chris Kamen, uh, Chris Burgess played amazing, I mean, backwards dunks. And these are big games. This is Michigan at Duke kind of games. Like at the Chicago United Center National TV against Michigan State kind of game. Like these are big games. I didn't even play. Like I was benched like it could have been had you been benched before in your never, career never 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 i'm the you come back and do what you need to do you'll be a top three pick i'm that guy and i'm benched well how do you respond oh i put in that work i'm an elliptical i'm shooting i'm coming back at night you know i'm getting my school work done but i'm grinding like i'm taking it up a notch like i'm i'm not gonna fail like i'm going at it hard but was it f you coach or was it like was it, yeah, like, try to give me more insight into what it was, So the reaction to it. So, r remember, I quit basketball because a coach pushed me before. And I felt that I was being unfairly pushed. Was I felt like I was being unfairly pushed again? Yeah, of course I did. Like, I'm averaging 16 and 8. We're the number one team in the country. Like, I'm doing my thing, but I get it. You want more. So this time you around, see more. this time around, you've got mom in your ear with that figuratively, right? Like mom's in your ear figuratively, like he, he cares about you. He sees something That's in you. He sees something in you. Sees something, in you. even if he didn't. Did you have to go to mom in that moment, or you you did you were you able to process that on your own? No, no, mom was there all the time. Like she was there, you know, 
talking on the phone, reinforcing all that. Maybe not that exact message, but just baby, it'll be okay kind of message. So, yeah, no, I just went in the grind mode. Like, I got it. Did I feel like he was picking on me? Hell yeah, I did. Like, come on, we're six, I'm averaging 16 and 8, da-da-da-da-da. I'm who I am, but I get it. I'm grinding. It would have been so much easier for him to not. It's coast. Coast. Right. We would have still won some games. We would have pushed me. And then when I finally got back on the court, for whatever reason, I don't remember how. I'm telling Chris Burgess had a backwards dunk at home. The crowd's going crazy. Like so when you say benched, you were playing, but you weren't starting? I might Those not even games? been. I might not even been playing. Like <laughs> I don't even remember. Like and was I, there anything attitude-wise that you were doing, or was it just him trying to get you to another level to nudge? No, you? no, no, another level. Like I, I never rocked the boat. Like teammates. Like you know, even if I was jealous or mad, I'd fake it. You know He's I mean? just nudging <laughs> you. He was nudging you to see if you can unlock something more. Exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. So you came back. So oh yeah yeah it came back. We didn't lose a game in the ACC. Like dominate like we killed it and uh end up losing in the finals by three to UConn you know Rip Hamilton got hot Khalid Elliman got hot um but we ran through the just the NCAA it's like oh one of the best teams ever lost that one game by one and then the final game by three but yeah I, I was focused I was on it you know what I think the best coaches in the world do is they don't wait for someone to be sick to get help them get better right so you don't have to be sick to get better. I can still get you better, even though you're healthy. Right. And I think um, I, when I've been around great coaches, I'm always in awe of their ability to do that because I'm someone, when I'm in awe, I, I sort of be an observer, and I just watch, and I'm in awe. But I think a great coach won't put themselves in awe because they still want to nudge you to get to help you get better. And so when I get into my job, like I try to help people, I say, you don't have to be sick to get better. Like, let's just focus on trying to get better. And if you study elite performers in any line of work, they are always focused on improvement and getting better. And they don't wait till they're sick. Whereas I think maybe mediocre performers, they'll wait till they get sick. And then they'll say, all right, I got to get this work in or they'll get cut and then they'll be reactive. But as I, I study this stuff, the more I, I see it as like, no, they don't have to be sick to get better. They are just constantly focused on getting better. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense. And um, they're daring. They'll take that chance. Because what if I don't respond? And what if the team just takes? It's risky. It's risky. It's risky. But he's not going to, you know, not nudge you. He's not going to not push. That's his job. And that's why he's, you know, arguably, in my opinion, he's the greatest. But arguably, in, you know, everyone, you know, maybe outside of, uh, you know, Coach Wooten, Wooden, the best coach in college history, but he took that risk. Like, basically, look, I'm going to lay it on the line. It comes down to values for me. Do okay. I value security right. or do I value helping someone get to where they want to go? So the right. word coach is an awesome story. It comes from Hungary. Uh, that's where the carriage or the horse and buggy or the coach was invented. And the idea of a horse and buggy or a carriage is it helps someone get from where they are to where they want to go. <laughs> so you get in a coach or a horse and buggy, you say, all right, I'm here, but I want to go to that part of the city. And the coach driver uh, would get someone from where they are to where they want to go. And then University of Oxford loved that story that they took the word coach, which is the town of Hungary. It's K-O-C-H-S, coaches. Um, and they stole that word to use it for academic tutors, and they called them coaches. 
Um, so when I think about my job, it's to help someone get from where they are to where they want to go. And I'm sure Coach K is sitting there saying, I told you you're going to be a top three pick or whatever. You're, you're going to have the opportunity to do whatever you want at the next level. If I told you that, we need to get you from where you are to where you want to go. And where you are right now isn't your best. Um, and so it, like it's, it's simple, but I think in business, people often go towards security. And especially in the sports business, because there's only so many of these jobs available. So you look at a lot of the top organizations, they will value security less than maybe service yep. um, or risk-taking. Mm-hmm. Um, but the very premise of a job, we all want to be secure. And so if you can create a culture and environment that it's not about security and it's about growth or it's about development or it's about you know buzzwords, culture, um, things that we hear a lot about sports today, it can get people from where they are to where they want to go. Um, so it's just a fascinating story. I, wherever you put Coach K on your Mount Rushmore of coaches, he's on it. Um, and you look at what he's been able to do with teams of immense talent and teams maybe of less talent, um, and he's done it with, with both, uh, including the U.S. national team. So, um, you know, there's certainly something there. I think everyone likes to look at coaches that are quote-unquote new school and say that that's the way it should be done. Um, we've got coaches in the NBA now who are seen as new school, like I'll throw out a Brad Stevens or a Steve Kerr, who, whoever it might be, maybe Spo. Um, Coach K comes from military background, right? Bobby Knight. Um, how would you describe him? Would you describe him as old school, new school? Like, how would you label his way of coaching? You know, he's able to adapt. He's able to adapt. You know, he was very old school. You know, he, like I said, Bobby Knight played for him. He was his point guard at West Point. You know, he was tough, military, focused, regiment. Like, he, that's who he is. But then he sees the shift, and you see more one-and-done players coming. You see, you know, different kids, different environments that he can adapt, and he can find a way to speak to their language. So, um, and push them and nudge them, and he will. Like, I, I, t- I talk to kids when they're thinking about going to Duke. I tell them straight up, like, look, you may want to transfer eventually. But try to push through, because <laughs> if you're not giving him what he feels he should get out of you, he won't play. Like I tell him straight up, like they, you know, I, I, I like to be honest with him because now I'm in this kind of mentor, you know, OG kind of role when they these guys look look to me at that at that, um, you know, in that capacity. So I let him know, like it's not easy. Like he's gonna push you. You may not be happy, but don't give up. My only Coach K story is I went to a game, sat behind the bench and saw his love and his passion for his players. Um, there's emotion. There, you know, he's, he's bringing it. They win the game. We go back afterwards, and we talk about a specific player. I'm not going to mention the player's name. And he just starts going off about the player. I told that player, if he doesn't get his act together, I talked to his mom. I told his mom, if he doesn't get his act together, I don't care. He won't, he won't play here. He just right. won't play here. Right. And he just starts going off. And... It was an amazing thing. I don't know how old he was. How old is he now? He's in his 70s? Almost, like, yeah, 70. Like, like, this is an old guy. He's done everything right. um, in college basketball. He's done, you know, worked with pros at the, with the Olympic team, national team. And here he was after a game where I was exhausted just looking at him. And I got the sense that he was going to go watch film and go break it all down. And I asked one of the assistant coaches, I said, what, is, what does it look like after? And he said, yeah, he, he will go through everything, make sure, and then he'll shut it down. Um, but to have that passion and that energy for human development is his unfair advantage, right? It's secret sauce. Like, I care so much about not just human development, but team development. 
and he was like after a win once again you don't wait you don't wait till it rains to build a roof constantly building a roof constantly building a roof you know it's not about being sick we're just going to constantly get better and i'm going to hold you accountable to that and that's that's where it is that's a great point human development team development it's, it's basketball is just a conduit you know uh to the next phase of your life and that's why he looks at it like it might not be all pros but he wants us he wants us to grow into you know great great men that's his goal mission right purpose uh just clear on it so you leave after sophomore year what was that like for you um you know you guys hadn't won a national championship Mm -hmm. i'm sure you thought about winning a national championship Mm -hmm. you don't go to duke if you're not thinking about a national championship absolutely what's it like for you leaving um and it obviously works out but um walk me through that decision so i met with him um and told him you know basically i'm thinking about it and you know he almost interrupted me like you have to go like you have to go and this is before people were leaving super early I was the first from Duke to ever officially leave early that wasn't transferring and all that like we did everything we said we'd do and you're talking about Grant Hill Bobby Hurley uh, Christian Leitner first I mean, ever like these are guys are these guys are uh legends right legendary and, yeah so he says you gotta go we didn't win the championship. He's space, but we made it to the. Fu- you have to go. Your top three pick. You have to go. So you're the top pick in the NBA draft. Mm-hmm. I want to find out what it's like expectation wise to have that. I want to find out what it's like expectation wise to be top three coming into Duke. Um, so, you know, you you sort of uh, come from this town where it wasn't expected for you to go and do these things. But now that word expectation, you know, you have it at Duke. And now you've got a bullseye on you going to Chicago as, as the number one pick in the draft. What is that like for a 19, 20-year-old kid to process, um, especially in a city like Chicago? <laughs> and it was a bullseye, all puns intended. Like, it was coming after Michael Jordan and their amazing run, um, those championships. It's like, and I'm young. I Like, everywhere I went, one in uh, high school, state championship, back-to-back, made it to the – NCAA finals at Duke. It's like, okay, let's get here, and I'll figure it out in two or three years, get some championships <laughs> in Chicago. Like, I'm the man. But that was your mentality. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to restore this right back to where it was when I was watching Jordan when I was a little kid. They had the worst record, and that's how they got the number one pick um, after Michael left, and then they drafted me, and we probably had the second worst record. <laughs> it was deflating. Like, it was it was a whirlwind. Like, I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm me. Like, I could turn this thing around. Didn't get any free agents coming in. Tracy McGrady, Tim Duncan passed. They felt Michael Jordan wasn't treated right by the organization or whatever they felt. Um, you know, of course, they felt their cities were great and their organizations were great, so they stayed. Um, and we had a young team. Jamal uh, Crawford was there my second year. Brad Miller turned into an all-star. Ron Artest, again, was my teammate. Like, we had some young, young talent, but didn't have enough time to grow it. You know, the city wanted wanted to turn around. The city wanted to win fast. But um, I'm, I was always looking over my shoulder. Like, what did Steve Francis do tonight? Lamar Odom had a triple-double. Andre Miller is Sean Merritt. Like, as that number one pick, you know, I, you, you're looking over your shoulder. You want to prove that you deserve to be the number one pick. Were you competing against those guys? Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm like, oh, Steve Francis had 22 and 15 assists tonight. Like, I'd see the box scores back then. Like, it wasn't like – go on your phone and look online. Like, you'd read it in the paper or somebody would tell you. Lamar Odom had 15, 13, and 12. He had a triple-double for the Clippers tonight. What would you do with that? Oh, it was fuel. It was fuel. 
you know, selfish, but it was fuel. I went and got it. Like, I, I dominated that night, too. Like, okay, like, oh, that was a good one. Pat him on the back. It's my turn. Like, it would fuel me to do better. Like, I was always looking at the guys behind me to see what they were doing. And mentally, I'd play a game with myself if I didn't feel like working out, that they were working out. Lamar Odom's working out right now. Baron Davis is working out right now. Um, Steve Francis, they're in the gym. All right, how, they probably stayed two hours. I need to stay two and a half. You know, it was just a mental game that I'd play. I'd envision them going to the gym. I'm, I'm going to the gym too. Two a days, light work. I'm ready. So you used it as fuel. Um, you know, I, I had this vision in my head. Like, I don't think people realize the NBA is a long season. It's 82 games. And a lot of times it's back-to-backs. So there's three games, four games in a week, whatever it is. And sitting up close and personal at games – where there's not a whole lot of people in the stands. Like, I I had conversations with Ricky Davis. I had conversations with Jeff McGinnis. I had conversations with LeBron James, literally sitting up close and personal. and Or I would hear other people having conversations with NBA players. The ability to stay motivated and fueled every night. So you would use them as a barometer to make sure that you were focused and and motivated every night absolutely focused motivated every single night um wanted to earn my spot and then another thing was my competitor whoever i was going against i didn't want them to get the best of me i wanted to win that battle of the night win the day i wanted to win that battle so that was a motivating factor because my first two games were against the knicks with patrick ewan you know still kind of in his prime and Oakley Mason and um, Alonzo Mourning with P.J. Brown. They kicked my ass. Like, I think I averaged six points my first two games. You're playing against those big dudes. First two games. I got my ass kicked. I think I had six points. Summer League, I did great. I had 18 in one game. Antonio McDyess. Like, I'm playing. I'm balling. Like, okay, this is – I'm nice. Like, this is easy. My first two games, I got destroyed. I'll tell you a memory that I have, and you probably remember this. You went on, I think, Outside the Lines or somewhere on ESPN with Rip Hamilton. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. And they measured had, me. They measured you guys, right? Like, literally next to each other. I think Rip might have had you or as close. So, like, you know, once again, going back to the size aspect of things, like, you know, you're going against Pat Ewing or P.J. Brown or the Davis brothers, Davis, the Davises, uh, whoever it might be. Was there any challenge in that transition going from college where, you know, you've got big guys, but it's not every single night to coming into a league where – most power forwards, I did a study on this one at one point. This was probably eight years ago. The average power forward was 6'10", and the average center was 7 foot. And now that you're retired, you can probably say what your height was. Um, but, like, Rip Hamilton gave us an idea of what your height was. Was there doubt there your rookie year? You guys are losing. You're going against these giants. Like, was there any sort of self-doubt that would creep in? You know, the doubt, I guess, was – kind of mitigated by the work because I always it, that fueled me too it's like okay I need to find a way and once I got a little taste of that success those first six point game efforts turned out to 20 and 10 for the season and um you know co-rookie of the year which back then would have been an all-star but the coaches voted it wasn't the fan vote it didn't matter what your stats were it was old school coaches Larry Brown and these guys if you didn't win you weren't making an all-star team period so um, 
yeah, the doubt did creep in. Like, man, am I good enough? Can I do this? But it's like find a way to do it. Because I've always found a way. From Peekskill, New York, it's like I found a way. Like to make it to the state championship. They never won a state championship. We made a state championship. AAU, Riverside, we were, you know, one of the best teams. Oh, you went to do, you know, your top pick. Like I always found a way and I always believed I would find a way. And I always believed it would work out in my favor, always. So optimist. Uh, believing that it's going to work out, things are going to be okay, yes. things are going to be great. But what about when no one's there? What about those hours where you said, you know, they might, maybe Steve Francis is doing two, I'm going to do two and a half. Like, are you self-critical in those moments? Are you working on elements of your game? Like, how did you think about your growth when no one's watching? So I, I thought about it as, like I was saying, like, uh, it will always work out. I don't know when, and I don't know how. So it was almost a belief in a higher power, like it's gonna work out, like it always does. Was there a religion or spirituality piece for you? I was, you know, my mom, we went to church a lot. You know, she went to two times a week sometimes. Um, you know, but it wasn't like I didn't pray. Like I never prayed to God to make a shot or but to win a faith. basketball there game. There was faith. But there's faith. You know, I always, I always found something wrong with that. Like I used to tell my mom, cause she'd pray like that you'd have a good game or healthy or, you know, whatever. I'm like, well, what about the other team's mom? <laughs> Aren't they praying for them to win or, you know, those guys to be out? So, I, so, you know, you pray for health and just everybody has a great game. You know, everybody, you know, does well. But you can have faith without religion, right? Exactly. Like, and I think that's something we often get lost in. Um, nothing wrong with having faith in religion, but right. you can also have faith in humanity or whoever it might be. Um, really cool. So, so you, you, be, you always believed in yourself because you'd done things that others would have said weren't possible or, or believable based on other factors. Um, so, But this is the first time in your career where you're just losing. So you said you guys are the second to worst um, you know, record. If what not did the worst. Yeah, yeah, what did losing do for you? So it, it was always an excuse, though. Like you're the lowest, youngest team, lowest salary you know, team, like, oh, they're saving money. Like, we were babies. We were coined the baby bulls. Like, it was like, that's just how it was. You still had those super teams with, you know, the Spurs still. You still had the Lakers, like, coming into their own with Shaq and Kobe. You still had the Utah Jazz. Like, it was like, you wait your, you wait your turn. Like, you, no young team was winning back then, you know, no matter how talented, you know, the young guys were. It just took time to develop. So you, you took your lumps, and then eventually – You'd make it. So you were still like, hey, we're going to take our lumps now, but we're going to get better. We got a good young core. We got talent. Um, but that isn't what happens, right? So you get traded. <laughs> Is that blindside you? Is that something that you expected? What's it like to be traded? Uh, which is something, by the way, other outside of sports, like most people listening to this will never get traded in their life. Um Walk me through the human element of, of being traded. So, um, basically, my agent David Falk, which has you know similar, you know DNA or kind of values as Coach K. Like he had a client that was spending a lot of money, and he said, "Look, you're gonna go bankrupt, and I'll resign before you do that." Like talking about taking a risk and trying to help the player, uh, or help someone, or humanity, or development, like. David Falk, shout out to him because he's that kind of guy. Um, but it, he's my agent. He's, he was Michael Jordan's agent, Patrick Ewing agent, Alonzo Mourning. The list goes on. He's a super agent, uh, especially at that time. He let me know that 
they had a choice of Washington, D.C., where Michael Jordan was making his comeback because they had the number one pick, which they ended up taking Kwame Brown, or the number two pick, and the Chicago Bulls liked Eddie Curry. So they wanted to make a trade and move, and kind of which one would you want to go to because he would try to orchestrate it. And it's like, man, play with Michael Jordan. Okay, that sounds great, but that's also intimidating. Um I, I Rip watched, Hamilton on that team at that point? Rip Hamilton was on that team. And I watched the Clippers play on national TV. Young, talented, Lamar Odom, Andre Miller, Aulu Candy, Quentin Richards. Like, I've seen I've Like, it's clear as day. I remember watching them on TNT or something. And they had fun. They were athletic. They were doing the double head bangs. And it was just like, I'd rather go to L.A. I'd rather go play with the Clippers. And that's when the trade happened to the Clippers, but it, it, it was not just, like, I was always a realist, because I was, back then, way undersized for the position, um, but I had great, great, great stats, um, but I have Jerry Krause, he was a mastermind, like, he saw Eddie Curry, which could, you know, 6'10", 300, do a backflip, like, he was a beast, Tyson Chandler, seven-foot pogo stick, which, you know, I dominated that trade for years. It was like, oh, that's the worst trade ever. But then he came into his own, Olympian, NBA championship. Like, he he panned out. Like The he talent could, was there. It was there. Kraus knew what he was done. You know, but my talent was still to grow. They thought I was, you know, done. Sure. And that's where I started growing, reading the books, and became an all-star. And, and I killed the Bulls. It was fun. I destroyed, <laughs> I destroyed the Bulls many times. It was fun. You get into a competitive spirit, and you just lit up. Like, man, I oh. loved killing them. Oh, it was so much fun. They had Ben Wallace. They had one of the Davises, Antonio. They had the Young Bulls. Oh, it was So fun. they trade you, and you're like, I'm going to kill you. When I saw them. It wasn't on my mind. I'm just going to kill everybody. It was yeah. my goal. But when I saw them, oh, yeah, I, I destroyed them. Was there any humility that came out of that? Like, you're the first pick of the draft. You're building this thing with the Bulls. And whether it's right or wrong, you know, they saw an opportunity to have – you know, Eddie Curry and Tyson Chandler, two high school kids coming out that are seven feet. You know, I understand the idea of, all right, I'm a realist. I understand why they're thinking this way. But right. w- was there any, like, did it did it impact you at all? You know, see, I'm a, like, when I say I'm a realist, like, I, I just know where I came from. Like, people see Duke. They know, like, Duke and a lot of guys from Duke come from a certain stock, a certain, you know, two-family background, you know, especially back then, a certain amount of wealth. Like, I really had powdered milk, government cheese, single mom on disability. Like, this is this is light. Like, you're telling me I have to move to L.A. and play with a bunch of young guys? I'm not sulking about it. I'm okay. Like, I'm good. Like, let's get it. Like, let's go. Like, that's how I felt about it. Like, I, it was never, like, like I was upset. Like, so there's optimism. There's gratitude. It's, it's perspective. And perspective. Like, I'm just going to keep – Put my head down, do the work, and and we'll and we'll see how this trade turns out. Thankful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful. Like I I came to the to the Bulls practice facility to talk to the media after I was traded. Like I I was thankful, I'm thankful for this NBA and the trajectory. Like it changed my life. Like I was thankful. You probably saw guys throughout your career that didn't have that. Yeah. How do you think that impacted them? And you don't have to say them specifically, but like guys that weren't thankful. Yeah. Um, how do you think that impacted their career? Yeah, they didn't last long. It didn't last long. Oh, I was an all-star. I'm not coming off the bench. I'm not this. I'm not. It's okay. Well, there's a lot of young talent coming up that will, or there's some vets that will. And uh, you know, you you pick your own. You want the ego, and you want that that side of it. You won't last long. 
So do you think gratitude impacted how you handled stress? Absolutely. Give me more. It's like, you know, I, I always seen like there would be a better day. Like it was very stressful. And Sam Cassell, when I played with the Clippers, on the court, stress really, really shed some, um, really shed some light on basically how to play the game and pressure shots. Like I remember he missed a game winner and we're sitting together because we sat together on the plane and um, I looked at him and was like, man, are you rewinding that shot over and over again? And he called me horse. And he's like, come on, horse. Like I shoot that shot every day. Like I shot that shot thousands of times. It just didn't go in. Then we started watching Martin or something funny on the plane. <laughs> he just moved on. Like totally, like I seen it in him. Missed the game winner in front of 20,000 and whoever's watching, just moved on. It rushed right off of him. So that was a good learning lesson because I was more of the think about it more at least, you know, it may not settle in me, but I'd just rerun that play, rerun that play over and over again. It's interesting you mentioned Cassell because his career starts in Houston where he's playing right in the thick of it with Akeem, Kenny Smith, you know, in, in the NBA Finals and making an impact from Florida State like right off the bat. And then he had a long career because of, I mean, look, he's a talented guy, but his confidence, swagger, literally putting his hands under under his balls and, and like literally like that image is what Sam is. And even as a coach now, you see him just like, there's a swagger to him. He's a he, he's a baller. Um, and, and even like his voice, like his whole affect. If you've ever like been around that guy, you can just see the energy that he has, the spirit that he has. Um, any idea? Do you, is that developed, or do you think that's born, or do you think that's a product of environment? Like, what do you think that is? So I really think that's a product of environment and early success. I hit two big three-pointers in the NBA Finals. You think this regular season miss shot against the Wizards or the Bullets when they, they were back then is going to phase me? I don't give a rat's ass. Like, e, like, that's light. That's nothing. Like, when you got that mindset and you've done it, you know you could do it again. I already did it. So that early success of hitting the big shot or making the big throw or being up to bat, and, you know, it, it's ingrained in you. Like, you feel for a while until – you know, whatever happens that I think you can do it again because that's what he was. He just knew, like, I can hit every shot, and he made some big shots. All right, so that, that works for him. Right. But there's another side, which is, you know, Kobe, Bri Kobe Bryant airballing for Utah the series. Utah Jazz Series, right? Like, um, so I don't know if you think about this, but, like, that's a different side. Like, what, what do you think allows someone like Kobe to go through that process? He's in the playoffs. He shoots four airballs. I think it was fourth quarter and overtime. And they are air balls. Like, they're not. I remember. You, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. What do you think allows someone like Kobe to not, who didn't necessarily have that early success in the pressure situations, to still believe in himself? You know, I think it's, it's, it's a mentality that the great ones develop, have. Maybe they're born with it. But I, I point to that, that uh, illustration also. Like, I tell my kids about, like, I remember that vividly. Like, four air balls and, like, really short. And we still got Shaq out there and Van Exel and Eddie. You know, it's like, you had a good, yeah, good. And this young guy's shooting these air balls. Eddie Jones literally in the corner, <laughs> wide open. And Kobe's taking a three from, like, five feet off the three-point line. Right. And right. I saw him interviewed, and they asked him about it. And he said, when I, ref I so I, it happened, and I reflected, and I said, why did that happen? And this is what he said. He said, well, in high school, I played 30 games, 35 games. 
in the pros, that was probably game 120 for me. So I tried to take the emotion out of it and say, I wasn't in good enough shape. My legs weren't with me. And that's what he said. He said, so I, I knew I was like, I got to get in better shape. Right. I got to get more, more fit right. and in better shape because this is a long season. And right. I got to be ready to make that shot when I get it next. But like to go into that mode and not crush your self-esteem mm-hmm. while still being self-critical is to me massively important because a lot of people say oh don't be self-critical even sam would probably say oh don't worry about it man you missed a shot whatever but like to have the wherewithal to then say all right what happened like let's be critical like let's open it up let's unpack it let's reflect on it but not beat myself up like esteem wise which is what sam sam's sam's self-esteem wasn't gonna rise or fall based on shots made we were talking about ray allen before we like turn the mics on like ray allen's self-esteem isn't going to change between made shots and missed shots but to still go into the task and say what was it that i could do differently that's the journey of growing and learning and to your point of like i'm still going to try to figure out so that an analytic uh the analysis of what happened and whether it's bs or not he had to come up with a solution so then he could work on that solution to make himself better. So then when he's back in that situation again, he knows he can do it. Right. That's how I'm thinking about it. Um, Cause I think it's fascinating. Cause a lot of people, those four air balls would end their career. Absolutely. It would be, it'd be done. Um, Absolutely. You know, in baseball, you see pitchers sometimes have that happen and they, they can't pitch again. Right. Like Ever. we see it in football with Ever. a field goal kicker or a quarterback that just gets beat up their rookie year and can't come back from it. So we see it happen, but it's, that resilience is is fascinating. Um, I want to go back to you because you have a season with the Clippers. And I think it's 2006. When we first talked on the phone, you said, "Man, there was one season where mentally, you know, I was I was where I needed to be." Walk us through that season and what went into it and what your process looked like and and how you were thinking about the game. Yeah, so I was uh, you know close to being an All Star. Uh, you know, previous years, I think I may have made you know, one all-star just stats-wise, but we didn't make the playoffs. And then it's like Lamar Odom again is in Miami. They made the playoffs with Dwayne Wade. All right, now we're not young. Now it's time to get to the playoffs. It's time to compete for championships. It's time to take it to that next level. Okay, you're proving yourself. You belong in the NBA. You average whatever. Now it's time to win. And let's pause it. You're on the Los Angeles Clippers. So People today might not realize what that meant back then. <laughs> right. So it's nice of you to say, like, oh, they got Quentin Richardson, they got the, all these up-and-coming young athletes, mm-hmm. and it's fun. But n- let's not get it twisted. They were the losingest franchise in all of the NBA. They didn't pay players. They, th- they were seen as a black hole. Um, so for you to come in there and be optimistic is, some people would say, is, is stupid. Right. Um, but I just want to paint that picture for people because I, I don't know what – when was the last time they made the playoffs? It, it would probably been 20 years or something, right? Like, Absolutely. Like, they were awful for a number of years. Yes, they've got this young, exciting talent, but um, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are saying they're the Clippers. They're just not going to be successful. So I think painting that picture and understanding the environment that you're entering is important. On purpose. Like, he wanted the lowest salary. Um, he wanted to turn a profit every year, and there he There was did. no cap, and he did. He got a profit. He, the highest-paid player ever was Eric Piekowski for $12 million before I signed. Like, it was – that's what it was. You, that was a, basically showcase yourself for the rest of the league, and it was laughable. Like, the worst franchise ranked ever year after year. We, we talk about the mission of a Coach K and what his purpose was. 
as I said earlier, I think values, people value different things. So right or wrong, he valued turning a profit. Right. Um, now I can make a lot of arguments about how that doesn't lead to actually maximizing your profit, but um, that was the value there. So they're valuing that, and you're going into a, a culture and an environment that values that, and now you're saying we're going to make the playoffs. All right, so so go back to it. Um, you're, you're coming in, and you're saying, like, all right, because you're putting up the numbers. Like, mm-hmm. you're a double-double machine. Right. I don't think people realize, like, Elton was doing work, like, you know, you go look at the stats. It's double, 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 double. It's and back in that day, if you're a power forward, that's what that's the goal, right? I'm a double, double guy. You know, twenty and ten is is what you want out of your power forward. So you're doing all that, but you're not getting the accolades, right? Um, and the team you want to you want to win. Want to win. All right. So what are you doing that year? So that year, that summer, um, you know, that's when I started. You know, the research, the reading. You know, I read. You know, power of the subconscious mind. You know, I read the flow and the zone. You know, I'm picking up every book I can. I started going to a, um, you know, sensory deprivation tank, which is known as a float tank, which I see Golden State Warriors and guys using it today. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, I used that 10 years ago. But I Who, love. How'd it. you find that? Um, you know, just studying. You know, just studying. Like I'm just researching. Researching, and you know, the internet wasn't wasn't big. You know, Google probably just came out. Like, but I'm just researching. Like I'm finding every advantage. Like edge, I tried a hypnotist. Edge. Like I tried everything. Like I'm looking at everything. I didn't go to a sports psychologist per se, but you know, I was looking at every every angle, diet. Like I'm trying everything just to get a legal edge. Like I wasn't going to try to do anything. You know, out the you know outside of the guidelines, but any legal edge I could get. And, and what's driving that bus? Like, what for you is winning? It's it's. I want to make the playoffs. I want to make the play. I want to win. I want to win. These other guys are winning. That's my role to win. Um, you know, we have young talent, and we want to win. So at that point, you're sick of losing. Were you sick so fed up of losing that you're like, I am gonna. I don't care. Hypnotist, let's do it. Put me in a tank with no <laughs> lights, let's do it. Like, you were just so. I'm, I'm gonna use the word in pain, right. but like. You were so frustrated or angry or pain. You were fed up. Yeah. Your back's against the wall. And you're like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, I was the impetus. Yeah, it's just like I'm fed up. You know, of course the money's there. You can make the max. You can make this. You know, that's part of it too. But you know, it was the losing. It was the losing. Seeing other guys win and go to the playoffs. When you're young, it's like you could play and get your numbers. That's fun. You still could go out. The girls love you. You know, you could still. All right, I'm I'm an NBA. And a lot of people do right. Like that's a, a lot of people's mindset in the NBA is like, look, I'm getting paid. Right. I get to travel. Get There's to travel. girls at every hotel. Like, you know. That's a little overblown. They're not, like, in the lobby at the hotel. But right. I know what you're saying. There's yeah. girls in every city. <laughs> There's girls in every city. Um, <laughs> you can find plenty of fun. Right. And, oh, by the way, like, I get to go shoot a basketball. Like, I compare right. that to, like, other sports. I'll back up one step, and then I want to find out more about this. Like, I work with football sometimes, and I've worked for a Division One football team. And it is amazing how many football players don't love playing football. Right. Um, but basketball players, a lot of them love love it, love balling, love it, love it, love it. Like it's these different. guys love it. Now, there was times I loved it. You know, some sometimes I tolerated it, but I when it became more of a business. But I loved it. Guys love playing. Like they play all the time. They watch every minute of it. They watch. You know, women's basketball, peewee basketball, they just love the game. But um, And there is there is a level of love, right? There's an obs- there's obsession, and then there's loving playing, right. right? So you have guys who love playing, but they might not love the nuances of working on footwork or defense or watching film. So right. there's different levels of love, but it's worth pointing out that, yeah, I think a lot of basketball players become complacent with 
the the life um it, it, it's it's a fast exciting famous life like people recognize you um anyway so but back to that so first of all i want to go to the sensory uh, the, the tank what were what were you doing when you were in the tank so basically it's a salt tank you know i'd have like a, a cd i had made um, by dr thompson he, he was based out of like um near santa barbara no near san diego like Encinitas or something and he made me a special CD. With, this is CD days. <laughs> this is like way back. Um, and it had certain sounds. And, you know, it was like beta waves, theta waves. Like it was all of that. It was like even gamma, which like I still can't prove or even there. Like it was all this stuff. And it was like the CD. So I listened to the CD and I was doing visualization with anchors. So I, you know, to give you one of my anchors, this was one of my anchors. I'd uh, have my forefinger and thumb and press it. That was an anchor. So I was in there in float tank visualize, visualizing my game, making shots, um, playing defense, winning games. And, you know, I saw a study. It was basically, to kind of summarize it, you know, guys that would lift weights with their finger um, to guys that visualized themselves lifting weights with their finger. Basically, they were almost the same. They didn't lift the weights, but they thought about it and visualized it, you know, things like that. So I would just go in there, hour, relax, listen to the music, and just visualize myself going through the game from basically warm-ups, anthem, to on that court against my opponent. It was Zach Randolph that night. It was whoever. I'd, I'd visualize it. So each, how often would you do it? Oh, at least as much as I could, at least twice a week. Like, I'd be in there. I had one put in my house. <laughs> so you're in your house and doing that, and you're visualizing how you want to play, how you want to play against an opponent. You've got your triggers. Would you bring those triggers into the, into the arena? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I bring my anchors and triggers into the arena. Like, during the anthem, I, you know, I, I try to make them, like, subtle. Like, maybe one was put your hand over your heart during the anthem. But I knew what I was doing. When I put my hand over my heart, that would – settle me relax me settle get me down into that zone and into that flow were you someone who wanted to be pumped up or calm down so i wanted a middle i needed to be pumped up like because I, I was aggressive i was blocking shots you know all, top 25 all time if you check the stats you know at six eight you know <laughs> so i was blocking shots rebounding like he, didn't, he didn't know he didn't know that stat <laughs> off the top of his head he googled that and then he came back. right no but you knew that you wanted to play ferociously to, with an intensity to right, you but right that there was calm and clarity that allowed you to do that. Exactly. So it was like a peak, you know what I mean, on that bell. I needed to be somewhere in the middle. Like I couldn't be too, you know, Red Bull jacked up, and then it's like I'd crash and be tired at the end of the game. Like you alluded to Kobe and having no legs at the end. So I wanted to find that right kind of balance. Yeah, there's something called the inverted U theory, which is what you're talking about is, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a one, you're too, too asleep and not have enough adrenaline or they say arousal. Um, if you're a 10, then you have too much. So it would probably be around a five. The other thing you talked about is visualization. And there is some research around the idea that the mind doesn't process, whether it's physical or mental. If you start visualizing it, the mind thinks you're actually physically doing it. So that's why people like the Blue Angels, when they fly planes, will visualize. If you watch the Olympics, gymnastics, like they're big on visualization. And a lot of basketball players as well, uh, football players, will, will leverage that tool uh, in your toolbox. So you start doing the mental training um, what else led to a breakout season for you? Um, you know, of course, the physical side. You know, I was, I was in great shape. You know, I worked at it. I, I pushed myself uh, in the gym. Um, but that mental part, like I didn't think I could miss a shot. 
and I, you know, you, I don't know what I shot, but it was fifty three percent from the field. Right, and right at, at almost twenty five points a game or something like that. Like I'd shoot from the other end now and really think I could make it. <laughs> like I was in the zone, and and I know there's studies and stats, and the mind didn't know. Like my mind didn't know. Like when I was in that float tank making every shot, when I went in that court. I could make every shot. The body's doing the work. The mind is not really playing much of a role because you've already trained your mind to be in that space. I already trained my mind it with my mind, and then physically, I went out there and put in that work too. At that time, what were what were you doing? You know, um, in the lonely hours, what were you doing in the, where no one's watching? What, what was that looking like for you that year? Uh, you know, same thing. No, I go out to dinner. We probably went to clubs. You know, I was still young. Like we, I was doing all that stuff too. That was a part of it. Um, you know, not as much, but I, that was definitely part of it. But the reading, um, you know, having having those goals and stuff like that, like it was there. Awesome. Um, you also won an NBA Sportsmanship Award that year. Did that carry any meaning for you as well? Oh, absolutely. Was that the Joe Dumars Award? I yeah. think, yeah, that, that, that meant a lot too because, uh, you know, again, again, I know, you know, where I come from. So it's like from, you know, the ball boy to – know someone that's selling popcorn like it's like there's no difference like i knew people that sold popcorn at msg i know the dj for the knicks basketball camp that doesn't get paid like you know what i mean like, I, like those people could have been you all day long well i'm a little taller so i might have been security <laughs> <laughs> i might have been security or something yeah. wrestling oakley down or something yeah we don't need <laughs> to go there uh but the other thing that's amazing about that year is you led them to the playoffs so absolutely you, you achieve what you set out to do with the absolutely. vision that you had yeah. what was it like taking the clippers to playoffs and yeah. was it like like i i'm looking at that team like fun like young um you know I, a lot of first-round talent. It's not like you guys didn't have talent, but what was it like breaking through that oh, for that organization? That was great. You know, we beat Carmelo in Denver first round, and we get the game seven to Phoenix, but that game five, we had it. And, you know, Coach Dunleavy, who did a great job, masterful job, um, had a, a young guy, uh, Daniel Ewing, a dookie, guarding Roger Bell, and he hits a three in the corner to put it in overtime. We end up losing. But that would have been Western Conference Finals against – Dallas, who ended up winning it, I think, that year, who we beat pretty handedly during the season. And then, you know, Miami made it to the finals, I think, that year, which, again, we battled with, but we beat, you know, and uh, it, it's, just, it's just disheartening. But it was great to get to that level, and, um, you know, I wanted to build on that success. So you have success. You help the team get to the playoffs. You're really building something. Um, I know you, you then transition. You, you end up – going over to the, the Sixers. Um, one of the things I was really curious about as I look at your career is is injury. Yeah. And uh, you, you come over to Philly uh, and have some injuries. And just talk about what it's like to go through an injury as a pro athlete and to have your fitness or the, the, part, the part of yourself that you use most is your body as an athlete. What's it like to have that taken away from you? Uh, it's It's... Man, it's 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 a tedious kind of rehab to get back from any injury uh, at this level because you're playing against the quickest, strongest, you know, arguably the best athletes in the world. So when I tore my Achilles with the Clippers, you know, my guy that basically helped train me and get me to AAU, Uncle Rob that I talked about, he cried. <laughs> he cried. He's like, it's over. Like, you know, he was he was in tears, and he's a tough guy. Like, you know, um, 
Yeah, it was tough, man. Get with the Sixers, sign this big deal. You know, not the max, but close to it, like big money. Then I tear my labrum in my right shoulder. So it's like, you know, you can't catch a break. So that was two full seasons in a row of not playing. So that mindset, I was really down. You know, I still had the brighter day coming, but it was it was tough to see it. It was tougher to see it then. It's like, you know, you're in a new city. You have the big contract to live up to, and you know, you're you're injured, and and you can't help your teammates. It's that was, you know, it wasn't depressing, but it was, it was it was a tough time. Who else helped you get through that and, and handle that uh, in your life? Um, you know, that's when I, I kind of you know, sports psychologist was there. On the team, had a uh, Joel Fish. He still works with the team. Met with him some. Um, you know, he couldn't tell you client <laughs> doctor relationship, but I, wor- I worked with him some. You know, my wife and family. You know, again, perspective. You know, I was like I had my, my son. My first child was born. He's nine now, but um, and, and and that that helped a lot. And my teammates. My teammates were great. It was like Andre Godala, Sam Dallenberg, Andre. Like these guys are just like look. You know, you're part of this team, and they eventually battled back, made it to the playoffs against Orlando, and, um, you know, so that that really helped a lot, too. I think one of the coolest parts of your story is what happens after that. And <laughs> I don't know if you think about this, but um, you end up extending your career. You, I don't know, how many years did you end up playing in the NBA? Yeah, so it was like 16 and a half because I went to training camp like two years ago. Yeah, so, yeah, extended it for sure. But you play late into your 30s. Um, and you said something earlier about how your mom said, you know, people play basketball, but, you know, there's a difference between playing the game and being a pro. Right. Um, as you think about your career and the ability to be a pro yeah. at all the stops along the way, how do, you, how do you reflect on that? What enabled you to do that? And as you just reflect on your career, I think everybody that you came in in contact with would say Elton Brand is a pro's pro. Right. Um, how do you feel about that compliment? And then... How do you think about your journey and, and especially that sort of latter stages where um, maybe the athleticism wasn't what it was or maybe the, the body wasn't moving like it was, but yeah. you were still adding value to teams? Uh, it, it's, it was, again, you know, thankful, thankful. You know, we, I remember we played Miami Heat because um, we got back to the playoffs. I had a really good season, you know, after what I've been through, 16 or 15 and 8 or whatever it was, you know, pretty respective. I was uh, – respectful kind of kind of season made it to the playoffs I'm four for four from the field I'm coming down and I could go for this dunk um (laughs) but it was on my power leg which was where I tore my Achilles and like Joe Joel um from the Miami Heat is coming Joel Anthony and it was you know back when I could move my body when I did have more athletic oh that was an easy dunk like that was easy so I end up doing like this kind of finger roll reverse thing that like hit the side of the backboard, and it's just like it's disheartening, you know what I mean? Because we're like going at Miami Heat was 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 the eventual champions that year, um, but you know bounce back second year, second round game seven of Boston, you know we're we're rocking and uh, Rondo hits two threes after being two for eleven or something, so from three, so it's just it's just being a pro. You know, coming prepared, even if you couldn't give it athletically, you gave all that you had. And a lot of people saw that. And, you know, at the time, it was more, you know, teammates and, you know, talking to teammates. Like, look, if we win, we all eat. We win, we all get good contracts. We all are respected. 
and kind of understanding that role. Um, you know, like guys like Andre Godale, they, they, they thank me today. Lou Williams, you know, guys are like, man, he like, thanks for you know, talking with me and, you know, being there for me when we were, you know, talking about stuff like that, like the team, the team effort, because I always thought, you know, I, I never got a chance to win a championship, but, you know, I've been on some pretty good teams. So 16 and a half years, good teams. Is there a player that you either were around in the locker room or that you would know about um, from just being in the NBA where you felt like from a mental standpoint they understood what was needed to prepare and what it was needed to perform? Um, you know, one of them that, that jumps to mind is Dirk Nowitzki. You know, in practice, I, I remember practicing with him because I, I, didn't, I didn't have the you know, ability to coast. Like for me to, you know, really show my worth, I'd have to give full effort, you know, blocking shots, rebounding steals, getting buckets. That was your style. That was your game. That was who I was. Practicing with Dirk, I said, we are in trouble. It's over. Like, this guy stinks. (laughs) I'm like, oh, it's over. Like, like, oh, man. Like, he's one of the greatest. Like, I remember him lighting me up for so many times, so many battles. Like, it's over. Then the lights came on, and he was – he was amazing. Every he brought it. He was so intelligent when he got out there. He brought it every night. So he knew how to get out of his body and his skill set what he needed for the game. He was amazing. He's a, he's such a special player and a good person. I got to know him over the years traveling, even though his family and stuff uh, from from some uh, you know overseas traveling. But it's just a great player, great person. But he he could he could focus in and lock in and when his lights came on he was ready to compete and ready to 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 dominate he's also such an interesting person because he's got this guru that he works with right <laughs> i've seen the documentary on him um that he you know brings over to work on different things he also played tennis growing up so he's got footwork from tennis and that helps you when you're now seven foot or seven one or whatever he is um but what from a human standpoint you said he's a great person what were the qualities that you saw in him as a human that helped him be a great basketball player? You know, I said the human type qualities that helped him be a basketball player is just selfless. Like he never f- acted as if, you know, I'm the, you know, finals MVP. He's like one of the guys, like laughing, you know, making jokes, just, you know, being there. But he, I think uh, this guy's Hoga, something like that. That sounds right. Yeah, like he was there at night, late night doing his drills where he'd, you know, bend all the way to the ground and, you know, you see his seven-foot frame curl up and shoot these shots and, um, you know, it was just a part of part of who he was. But just just, just kind of that whole organization there, like the Dallas Mavericks organization, like they're, you know, from the front office to, you know, the staff, you know, it reminds me of the Sixers. It's like, you know, it's family. It's, it's just a family atmosphere there. Well, they have a sports site guy, Don Kalkstein. I don't know if you ran into him at all. Uh, he might not have been there when you were there or whatever, um, but I know he works with them. Um, and it is interesting as I think about what I said earlier is like most people are in alignment with security. And if you listen to Mark Cuban, um, it's never about security uh, in Dallas. Um, and, you know, they do give security to Donnie Nelson and Rick Carlisle. Like those guys have been there for a long time. But I think because they give them security, they don't have to value security. Um, and I think that's different than a lot of other places where because the person doesn't have security, they're putting security first in their value system. Um, so it, that is an interesting dynamic. And, um, you know, I, I spent a little time with Cuban and you, you, that becomes very clear 
you know, it doesn't take long to realize that Cuban is just interested in how do we win, and I am going to do whatever it takes to give us an advantage to win, which is very similar to what you said during your 2006 years. Like, I'm going to do whatever's going to give me an advantage to win. Um, and I think when you get to that place, it can unlock our potential. Um, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to win legally. Um, and, you know, I find that to be something that's correlated with people that are right on that edge of, of trying to be successful. It's interesting with Nowitzki, just seeing where the NBA's gone uh, and where he, it was when he came into the league. Um, and like you said, when he comes into the league, it's the David Robinson, Tim Duncan, you know, the big four or five. And he was one of the first guys to really stretch the floor yeah. as a big and sort of move like a wing. Um, and you now are watching guys like Giannis or Jokic or Anthony Davis. You've got these bigs who are moving like they're six foot four. Uh, it's interesting to see what he's laid the groundwork for. Porzingis. Porzingis. I mean, it's Joel Embiid. It goes on and on. Embiid. Yeah. And ben Simmons is six. I don't know. You're next to him. He's probably yeah. six ten. Like it's it's pretty wild how the game is evolving and changing. Uh, Elton, we've talked forever. I appreciate it. Um, the last thing I want to do is just give you an opportunity to promote anything that you feel like promoting, whether it's on social media, foundation, um, the Sixers. Uh, for those that don't know, Eldon's now the general manager of the G League team uh, in Wilmington, but we're in Philadelphia because he also works with the 76ers. Uh, so that's where we're located. Um, so is there anything that you want to get out there to the world uh, and just talk about? Um, definitely, you know, support, you know, the Sixers, Delaware 87ers, that's the team I'm the you know, GM of. I don't have any social media. Um, I'm a board member, regional board member of Team Impact. We do a lot of th great things um, with children. Um, What's Team Impact about? So Team Impact uh, connects a young child, um, usually with some type of um, debil debilitating health issue, um, and he puts them with a college team. We put them with a college team for two or three years. Um, so they become part of the team. Do you know Chris Herman? So Chris Herman's the uh, head softball coach at Williams. Okay. She started it. Okay. And Chris uh, Chris is a podcast guest. Okay. I, I got connected to Chris, and she started with, I think, someone from Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah. Started Team Impact. The Kraft family is a part of it now. Yep. Yeah. You yeah. got it. Yep. So you're involved with them as yeah, well. Yeah, so I'm a regional board member, so that's, that's, that's a great thing. Um, and then um, you know, that's about it. That's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I am on social media, um, Brian Levinson on Twitter and intentional underscore performers at Instagram. So you guys can check me out there and I'll share anything, Elton, uh, anything that he's involved with as well, since he's smart enough to not be on social media. Um, so once again, thank you for your time. I appreciate it and look forward to more conversations. With I appreciate yourself. it, Brian. Thanks, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So basically it's a salt tank. You know, I'd have like a, a CD I had made um, by Dr. Thompson. He, he was based out of like um, near Santa Barbara. No, near San Diego, like Encinitas or something. And he made me a special CD. This is CD days. <laughs> this is like way back. Um, and it had certain sounds and you know it was like beta waves theta waves like it was all of that it was like even gamma which like I still can't prove or even there like it was all this stuff and it was like the CD so I listened to the CD and I was doing visualization with anchors so I you know to give you one of my anchors this was one of my anchors I uh, had my forefinger and thumb and press it that was an anchor 
So I was in there in float tank, visualizing my game, making shots, um, playing defense, winning games. And, you know, I saw a study, it was basically, to kind of summarize it, you know, guys that would lift weights with their finger um, to guys that visualize themselves lifting weights with their finger, basically they were almost the same. They didn't lift the weights, but they thought about it and visualized it, you know, things like that. 